Welcome to season two of How to Scale, the podcast by Frog Capital focused on helping software companies successfully scale up. In season one, we covered a range of topics with our group of operating partners who have learned from years of experience the different challenges all companies face on their way to scale. This is part of Frog's scale-up methodology, which brings together insights and tools to help improve companies' probability of reaching sustainable profitability. My name is Jens Düring. I'm one of the senior partners at Frog Capital. We invest in purpose-driven European software companies in the scale-up phase. In season two, myself and my colleagues are interviewing seasoned professionals in our network who share our passion for scaling purpose-driven software companies in Europe. Hello and welcome to today's episode of How to Scale. My name is Stephen Dunn. I'm one of the senior partners at Frog Capital with a particular focus on portfolio. Today we'll be talking about purpose and sustainable profitability with Matthew Olson, CEO of Evitix, a health and safety company where Frog was an investor from early 2020 until it was acquired in 2023. We'll be focusing on some key areas that helped Matthew to scale the business through that time, including the use of unit economics and rule of 40, and also how purpose has played such an important part in that scaling journey. Welcome, Matthew. Well, great. Thanks. Uh, great to be with you, Stephen. And uh, uh, yeah, uh, I'm the CEO, as you say, of Evertix. Um, I bought the business back in 2011 um, and uh, enjoyed partnership with Frog through their investment, which was the, the B round. Uh, we had a successful exit. Uh, I've actually remained chief executive of the business going forward, uh, now private equity owned. Fantastic. Uh, a fantastic journey. Uh, when we invested, the business was doing about six million of revenue, uh, loss making at that point, obviously. Um, so how were you thinking at that point about uh, the route to sustainable profitability um, and what sort of metrics were you really focusing on at that point that was going to drive your decision making on the business? Yeah, I, I guess um, most fast growing earlier stage SaaS businesses are going to be loss making and that's why we go and uh, get capital from, from, from investors. Mm. Uh, and the reason for that is that you're investing in growth and therefore in the future potential of the business. And so uh, I think the way to think about it, uh, certainly the way that we've thought about it and presented to, to investors, was to divide the business into two parts. Right? There's one part of the business which is about acquiring customers. Uh, and obviously, there's a set of metrics around that customer acquisition cost or sort of CAC, sort of CAC to LTV, etc. Uh, so you need to be uh, as efficient as you can in acquiring customers, but inevitably you're investing money in that process. Uh, and um, you're funding that by recycling cash flows from the profitable part of the business, which is your existing customers, where your, your cost to serve and to retain them um, uh, drives you know, quite nice cash margins. Mm. And so, first of all, there's a, there's a kind of a balance between those two parts of the business. Um, and the second thing that's going on is is that as you grow, you as and as you scale, um, you benefit from economies of scale. Yeah, and so this is a whole element of, of using unit economics. Uh, we've spoken before. I'm a little bit of a cynic that sometimes it's used inappropriately. How do you make sure that that's a really good indicator of your future ability to uh, acquire customers, particularly when you're looking at maybe new markets or, or new products? How do you have to adapt your approach to make sure it's still a relevant decision making tool? Yeah, uh, so I think what you're referring to is sort of unpacking a little bit that unit economics of customer acquisition. 
Um, so uh, under Vogue's ownership, as you know, we were entering the North America market, very different dynamics uh, to our UK business. Uh, in the UK, in our space, we are the lead player um, established in market. Therefore, our kind of marketing cost per, per, per lead is, is lower, uh, et cetera. And that drives a, a set of, of sort of new customer acquisition economics. Um, when you're entering a new market, of course, that, that's going to look, look, look different. And so um, there is a, a ramp up period in that kind of market entry process where the economics improves over time. Um, and also the second thing to think about is as you're growing, um, you've got mature reps and you've got ramping reps. And so, again, uh, even within that kind of customer acquisition economics, um, you need to divide between uh, the mature go-to-market with reps who are performing up to speed, delivering on their quota, um, versus those reps who are, who are still scaling up. Yes, absolutely. And there's a lot of debate about how people calculate their, their CAC um, in terms of what goes in it and, and what doesn't. Was that something that you were clear on from the start or was this an evolving um, solution as, as you sort of attack new markets or thought about different things that should be in those, particularly the variable cost element of the costs? On CAC, I think the, the CAC, the customer acquisition cost, is relatively more straightforward to, to deal with. Uh, I think where, where it becomes trickier is the LTV, the, yes. the long-term value. Because yeah. um, you know, how long a time period do you do you take? Uh, what do you assume about retention over time? Uh, how do you accommodate within that LTV expansion of customers? So uh, you know, I might start with a, with a, a deal where I've got fifty thousand of AOR with a customer, but I'm looking to grow that over time, maybe over five years, up to sort of eighty or ninety thousand. Um, so. Uh, if you're not careful, you end up with with uh, an infinite uh, long-term value. Yeah. Um, but it, but you need to offset also some cost of that expansion. So I, I don't want to get into all of the complexities of that, mm. but suffice it to say that there's lots of different ways of thinking about that. Personally, I don't think the, the CAC to LTV is a particularly useful measure, actually. I think yeah. understanding the CAC and sort of the magic number, which is uh, how long it takes you to pay back the CAC from, from, new, logo, uh, from, from new logo revenues. Yes. Is, is the way to think about you know, it. As you say, I mean, you can, you can make assumptions to to justify a long term loss making business with a, with an LTV to CAC, but I guess your focus on the core business and the profitability of that is your sort of anchor to make sure that you're not ever investing in, in increasing losses. No, it, exactly. So your 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 once you've once you've secured the customers, we all know that uh, that uh, gross retention is an absolutely vital measure. And so, you know, kind of tracking gross retention, making sure that um, you are holding on to your customers uh, and therefore that you are building that kind of cash generative profitable customer base um, is absolutely central to making sure that you've got a sustainable business. Yes. And another element that's, that's become very popular recently is, is the rule of thought. Um, I think it's a nice rule of thumb about the trade-off between growth and um, and losses, I'm not sure about the number particularly, but I think there is that sort of common sense approach that the faster you're growing, it's going to be, as you said, difficult to do that without without making losses. How, do, how does that factor into your approach, both within existing markets and, and newer markets? Um, well, I, I think it's, it's sort of a, a, an investor shorthand that investors <laughs> like to like to use. Um, I mean, it has the advantage of being widely understood uh, and out there as, as a benchmark for strong SaaS businesses. Um, I mean, of course, 
first of all, there are different ways, different people define the rule of 40 in different ways. So just for, in case people don't know, it's what you do is you add together your profitability and your growth rate. Uh, and the, the benchmark is that your business, your SaaS business should be at, at 40 or more. Um, the, the growth rate, you can measure it as ARR growth or as revenue growth. Um, and the profitability, some people use cash EBITDA, some people use EBITDA. So there's there's technicalities. And again, like yeah. with all of these measures, you need to know what you're what you're looking at. Um, but the, the other thing I'd say is that the rule of 40 isn't, in my mind, really applicable to early stage SaaS businesses. Uh, there's sort of a stage at which you reach the maturity. I'm going to call it maybe sort of 15 to 20 million of ARR, where it starts to become a meaningful measure that, that, you, that, that you can look against. Um, the other, the other uh, thing about the rule of 40 is that it basically equally weights profitability and growth. We've obviously been through a cycle with SaaS businesses where uh, back in 2021, early 2022, it was all about growth. Mm. More recently, it's been all about profitability, right? difficult to raise funds, um, uh, and companies needing to manage their cash resources carefully. Maybe there's a little bit of a bounce back now. I've seen it said that that actually, when you look at the valuation of SaaS businesses, growth rate is is roughly twice as important as profitability as a driver of valuation. And so, you know, arguably, as you do the world forty, you ought to take two times growth plus yeah. plus profit. Yeah, no, absolutely. I know there's different ways of looking at it, and probably. Um, back in 2021, it might have been three or four times the revenue weighting compared to the profitability. So it's definitely changing over time. But as you say, some of this feels a little bit um, investor heavy in terms of its importance. What would you be really looking at internally into your business to make sure you're driving long term sustainable profitability? Um, I mean, I think the, the the main sort of efficiency measure which we chose to use was uh, ARR per FTE. So recurring revenue per full-time equivalent uh, employee. Um, and um, because, you know, at a stage where you're before profit, uh, then, you know, how much, how much loss is, is, is good and how much is not. So we chose to follow ARR per FTE over time and to demonstrate that we were on an improving path of, uh, you know, more revenue per, per employee. Um, because we knew that ultimately that would lead to lead, lead to profitability as you as you hit scale. Yeah, and in terms of these sort of market dynamics, I mean, it's fair to say that your your value increased actually a lot faster than your your revenue did over the three years that, that we were invested, probably twice as fast. What what do you think were the main drivers of that? Was that the sort of clarity of your profitability journey just through those three years, but also that you were going to take it beyond that? Yeah, I, yeah, I think there's there's just you know proving over a longer period of time that the business model is working. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by the time that we exited uh, for, with, with from Frog, um, we had sort of 12 years of track record of delivering 30 to 40% growth per annum. And so that's a kind of a very strong story. Um, we also, working with Frog, um, put a lot of the kind of the, the foundations of strong scale up in place leadership team, business processes, et cetera. So we were able to demonstrate to our next investors that you know, we had a, a business that was, uh, we're told, more mature than would be expected for a business at that scale. And I think that that was an important part of the story. Um, but I think there's just also a scale thing. Um, you know, 
a a larger business, right? The the, the number of um, uh, SaaS businesses pushing twenty million of ARR, still growing at thirty or forty percent, is a much smaller population than, than the earlier stage. And so, you know, I think that does attract a premium, particularly in a space like ours, where there are very few businesses uh, with that with that kind of business model, and therefore there's a kind of a scarcity value as we looked to our next round of investors. Yes. And particularly your um, access to the to the U.S. market, obviously, um, surprisingly to many people, it's it's a much less mature market in in health and safety than than the U.K. and Europe, and so that was something that you know, really accelerated through uh, the three years and and continues to do so. How did you look at that differently in terms of a sort of a value creation strategy versus just a sort of a market penetration strategy? Um, well. We felt that it was important to be able to demonstrate to future investors that we had uh, the potential, the credibility, the go-to-market model, the product market fit for the North American market. Um, I mean, it's a tough journey, right? You go into North America with no brand recognition, uh, no referenceability uh, as as a UK business. Um, it takes time to get going. Um, so we we we. I guess we knew there were going to be some initial hard miles. Maybe we didn't anticipate quite how hard and how long that was going to take. But we did get to a place, therefore, at exit, though, where we had we had clearly proven product market fit. We had proven that we had at least the early stages of a go-to-market model that, that worked, and therefore a next investor you know, could take some confidence in that uh, and in the therefore in the upside potential of being able to scale that North America business. Yeah. And you talked about the maturity of the business um, on exit was was better than it was. It, it probably also was uh, when we invested compared to what we normally see in a very advanced HR function and, and sort of strengths in, in finance. But that's also an area that our scale-up methodology is really focused on investing in ahead of the curve and avoiding those bottlenecks. How did you think about that sort of evolution of the support functions, the HR, the, the finance? The operations pieces in order to create that maturity of business that, as you say, probably added a lot of value at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I guess it's a it's a constant uh, constant priority, constant focus to be building that operational capability. Right, so we're we're certainly not the finished we're not the finished article now. We're we're, we're constantly investing in that space um, because those are are the vital underpinnings. Um, as you say, we've invested in in talent, um, in culture, in our people offer. Uh, we invested in sort of metrics and kind of finance process and sort of business intelligence and sort of understanding the economics of different parts of the business. We invested very heavily in our operations around um, the whole kind of go to market through customer success model. Uh, and all of that, all of that has paid off for us. So uh, yeah, pretty nicely, I would say. Yeah, no, absolutely. And how important, in terms of the, you mentioned their values. Uh, how important was the purpose of the business in terms of driving the, the performance of the business as well? Um, yeah, so we are very much a purpose-led business. I mean, how can it be? well into the 21st century that we're still killing 5,000 people a year in workplaces in Europe and North America. And it's not like these are some sort of freak accidents. These are well-known causes, falling from height, hit by moving vehicles, caught in machinery, things that are readily preventable. Um, and meanwhile, 
uh, we're exposing some of the least advantaged in society to a lot of those risks, like people who are in insecure employment on, on, on low salaries. So, you know, we don't find that acceptable. Our purpose is to bring our technology to more workplaces to help to to address those terrible statistics. And so and, and, and that very much um, is drives alignment around our employees. Employees love being part of a true purpose led business that, that, that has such a clear remit. Um, but it also aligns very well with value creation, right? Because how do we how do we fulfill our purpose? We fulfill we fulfill our purpose by bringing our technology to more workplaces, which obviously drives growth in the business. Yes, and I think this is one of the things that often people assume that there might be some conflicts between having clear purpose and particularly values in an organisation and the the commercial performance. You mentioned earlier that ARR to FTE was one of your key metrics, which would be negatively impacted potentially by you know your first investment in lots of HR people or finance people in order to build the, the supporting platform. Did you ever feel that there was a conflict there or did you ever have to address that with your, your sort of uh, subordinates to say this is the right thing to do despite its negative impact in the short term? Um, I don't think we had that conflict internally, but um, I mean, you're right to call out that there are some potential um, with any metric, there are, there are potential sort of consequences. Um, as you say, with ARF per FTE, that encourages you to invest less in uh, in those supporting functions. Um, but we also, you know, 80% of our target was around growth, by 20% was around ARR per FTE. So we, we knew that we needed those supporting functions for growth. Um, the, other, the other potentially, um, uh, the other potential conflict is that we've had a, We've had a process of, uh, we've taken a lot of graduates. Um, so we've got a strong graduate program, particularly into the BDR business development representative function, but also into um, solutions consultants, so sort of apprentices, etc. Um, and of course, you know, a graduate is not going to be as productive as a, an experienced hire. And therefore, in doing that, you would expect to have a lower AOR per FTE um, but it, it didn't stop us doing it because we knew it was the right thing to do. And actually, that sort of you know really strengthened the business DNA and, and contributed to our culture, having that kind of enthusiasm and being able to shape those graduates to do it towards successful advertisers. Yes. And I mean, hopefully, uh, Frog was a supportive investor in regards to that and seeing the, the value of it. Um, was there any any sort of external voice saying that wasn't the right thing to do, or is it just really clear that that was the right thing to support the, the business and the long term value creation? I mean, I, I think I though I don't think there was any external voice against it. So uh, you know, I think it was the right thing to do. Uh, I just call it out because um, at, at, I think at our stage of maturity, there's not many SaaS businesses who who who, who take that approach. Suddenly, when I've talked to sort of peer CEOs, and uh, I think it is a very powerful. Um, it's a very powerful thing because you get people in who don't have any bad habits. You can immediately shape them to to the kind of the ebitics culture and way of thinking. And of course, the economics are very strong. Mm -hmm. um, so I can hire a graduate uh, into a BDR role. Let's say they start. I don't know. They, they, they don't quote me on the exact salary, but let's say it's thirty five k. Um, I can then promote them into other roles uh, and give them good salary increases, and yet they're still below sort of market level in those other roles. So it's it's very strong for business economics, uh, in my view, to to have a strong graduate program. Yeah. So I guess so. We're talking about purpose and uh, sustainable profitability. I guess the question is is whether they're separable or or does 
purpose, help you to drive sustainable profitability? And, and then when you get to the value creation, does purpose create value in its own right, do you think? Or is it because it helps to encourage you know, better commercial performance that it's helping with the, the value creation? Um, I mean, I think you know, the purpose um, in terms of its value to the business, I think most fundamentally is in the employee offer. Mm. Um, you know, health and safety doesn't sound like a very sexy thing, right? Um, uh, at least maybe to, to our generation, uh, we, we sort of think of health and safety and rules and procedures, et cetera. Um, but actually to, to the kind of Gen Z and maybe millennial generation, the, the importance of purpose and the, the resonance of that kind of safety message is, is very strong. And so once you start to unpack what it is we, we do and how we create safer workplaces, then people really like enjoy working in a business that has that strength of purpose. And I think that's the main value to, that's been the main value to us of being a purpose-led business. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So the whole journey has been uh, a great triumph for you, but you're, you're still carrying on. I think one of the key things that we see in the businesses that we're supporting is that the the values you know um, go on after the founders or the CEOs, less they should be built into the business. How are you seeing it post acquisition? Is is that something you're being able to uphold? Are there challenges to how the business continues after after that event? Um. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 been an interesting journey post acquisition. Um, I don't think we need to go into details, but suffice it to say that we were acquired by a portfolio company of of STG, STG is a West Coast Private Equity. Uh, the portfolio company was SAI three hundred and sixty. Um, we've been combining the Evitix business with the health and safety business within SAI three hundred and sixty, and then standing that up as a standalone business. Therefore. Uh, we've got an integration where we had 160 staff from the Evitix side and 100 staff from the SAI 360 side. And uh, I guess these kinds of integrations uh, at that scale where it's more of a sort of a meeting of equals um, always has uh, interesting dynamics. Um, but I think I think actually we've got ourselves to a very good place where the kind of the core of the Evitix philosophy and way of working is is you know, now the core of that of that new group. So it's great to hear that that journey has ended successfully, but uh, it can't have been easy to choose the right party for for the future of Evitix. How did you go about that um, process? Because I know there was an awful lot of interest inbound to to look at the uh, the company. Yeah, no, the, you're, you're right that we had uh, we had the benefit of a, a lot of interest because uh, we'd created a somewhat unique position. Um, I think we talked to fifty four parties. And um, I would say only a very small number of them were ones that I would want to sell to as, as a founder of the business. And the reason is that a lot of acquirers basically want to take the assets, want to take the revenue, but don't necessarily value what you've built as, as a business. Uh, and it was very important to me as a founder that the, sort of the DNA of Ebertix, uh was uh, you know, would, would remain uh, a post-acquisition and we would be able to shape uh, our destiny going forward and, and draw value from the culture and the business processes uh, and uh, systems, et cetera, that we'd built. So uh, there was only a small number of, of uh, acquirers who would fit that criteria for me. Unfortunately, um, uh, that also aligned with value. So uh, you can see, therefore, that the, the value that we built in the business is recognized by buyers of the right type. 
Absolutely, and we're, we're completely aligned on on that way of selecting a, uh, an acquisition partner. So fantastic to hear. Yeah, no, indeed. So uh, that was the great thing about our exit is that around the board table, everybody was aligned about what we were doing and, and how we were choosing. That's a great way to end this uh, this journey. So it's been all the way through from a great start. You've created a great business, but also that business and that that purpose and those values continue after that as well. So. Great to hear that story. Thank you very much, Matthew. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We welcome all feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for us to cover in future episodes. So please email howtoscale at frogcapital.com. And finally, to make sure you don't miss any future episodes, sign up for the podcast at frockcapital.com slash podcast. Proc invests in purpose-driven European software scale-ups, making a positive impact on society. We look for businesses who have reached product market fit and are generating over 3 million euros of annual recurring revenue, what we see as a characteristic of the scale-up phase. It's a stage where businesses are continuing the path of positive growth, purpose-driven route to sustainability, and profitability. Our own purpose is to help scale the most exciting purpose-driven software companies in Europe. We do this with both Capital and our in-house team of operating partners who work closely with all the companies we invest in to overcome the inevitable challenges scale-ups face.